Okay, if you've not been at LCPC for a while, if you've missed the past couple of Sundays or you're visiting us, it's probably uh, worth noting that we've recently begun a new sermon series at London City Presbyterian Church. Um, you'll see it in your notice sheet. It's a sermon series entitled, What Does It Mean to Be a Reformed Church? What Does It Mean to Be a Reformed Community, a Reformed Church thus far? Uh, we have looked at a couple of foundations about Reformed Christianity. Namely, the high view that we really must have of Scripture, but also the fact that a Reformed Church shouldn't primarily be focused on us. It should be focused on the majesty and the glory of the Lord God. Well, this morning what's going to happen is that we're going to have something of a transition We're going to move from the first area of that sermon series into the second. So we're going to move from the foundations of Reformed Christianity. And today we're going to move into beginning to look at the theology of Reformed Christianity. And in particular, just now, this morning, we're going to consider what is commonly called covenant theology. Covenant theology. And here's the plan. Okay, let me lay it before you just now. Yes, we are going to look at Genesis 15. We're going to base ourselves on that chapter that Peter's just uh, read for us. Genesis 15. We're going to try and do a little bit more than that as well. This morning, through a series of questions, we're going to try and engage in an overview of covenant theology. An overview of this theme. Before we start, can I say this? It is important... I don't know what you, you know what your first thought was there when I said we're going to look at covenant theology today. What was your first thought? Was it? It's too early for this. Was it? This sounds dull. This sounds boring. Oh, it's anything but. I mean, this concerns you, and this concerns the gods that we worship, our relationship with God, how He has revealed Himself. So it is important. It is important. Let's make a start with this. Okay, so a series of questions. Five questions today. First one is this. What on earth is covenant theology? What on earth is covenant theology? Well, let me make this as succinct as possible. Covenant theology is a framework. Yeah, you could call that framework. An interpretive framework for understanding how this book how the Bible works. So it's a framework for understanding how the Bible works. It's where we look at the formal agreements that God has made in this book. And we look at those agreements, those oaths, and we recognize that those covenants are the key to understanding the message of Scripture. Okay, the covenants that God makes in the Bible, the key to everything, the key to the gospel, the plan of salvation. Okay, So, what's covenant theology? It's a framework, an interpretive framework for understanding how the Bible works. We've nailed it. That's the first question done. We're making progress. Okay, second question here. Leads on. It's an obvious question. What's a covenant? From the Bible's perspective, from God's perspective, what is a covenant? Well, I'll tell you what, here, let me give you a definition, really famous definition of a biblical covenant, and then we'll just pull it to pieces. 
Okay, here's the definition. A covenant in the Bible is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Sounds good, does it? A bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Now, it sounds good, but what on earth does it mean? Well, let's pick it apart. It's a bond. And a bond, that's easy. We know what a bond is, don't we? A bond's a treaty, right? It's an agreement. It's a, an oath, a vow. A bond, scripturally, is a promise that God has made to you. A promise to his people. A promise what he promises to bless us. Okay? So it's exciting. It's a promise from God to bless us. It's a bond. What was the next part of that definition? So bond in blood, bonds in blood. So do this with me. Look at verse 9. Look at this, verse 9 in, in chapter 15. So God's entering into this covenant, formal oath. What does he say? He says, bring me a heifer and bring me a goat and so forth. And look at verse 10. What is Abraham to do? Abraham is to cut, pretty gruesome, right? He's to cut the heifer in half and split up the animals. Do you see the point, friends? In order for one of these covenants to be real, in order for it to be ratified, what had to happen? Blood had to be spilt. Blood that would later point to, yes, atonement. But even here, if it's blood, what does it show you? It shows you that these covenants that we're dealing with today, these are matters of life and death. This is important stuff. So it's a bond. What kind of bond is it? It's a bond in blood. How did the definition end? Bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Sovereignly administered. And this is easy. Like this is straightforward because we've got business people at LCPC, don't we? Some high flyers and bankers and so forth. So you people, you know how this works. Let's say you're striking a deal with another company. What do you do? Probably you get, I've got no idea actually, but probably you get around the, the table, do your bedroom table and you discuss with this other company. You try and broker the deal and there's a bit of negotiation going on with this other company, isn't there? Isn't there? I want you to understand. It is not like that. With a biblical covenant. Do you understand? It is sovereignly administered. In a biblical covenant, there is no negotiation with God. God steps forward and he proclaims to his people the terms of this treaty. So are you with me thus far? What's the covenant? It is a bond, it is in blood, and it is sovereignly administered. Now we're on a roll. We're getting through this, right? I said five questions. We've already... Put to, to bed. So you're ready for the third question this morning. Third question. How many covenants do we need to be concerned with today? Because on one level, if you know your Bible, you're going to say to me, there are a lot of covenants in the Bible, right? Uh, David makes a covenant with Jonathan. And Isaac makes a covenant with Abimelech. There's lots and lots and lots and lots of covenants, right? See all that stuff? Forget it just now. Forget it just now. Not saying it's unimportant, but forget it just now. Listen. From God's perspective, there are three covenants that we must know. Three covenants. You ready for them? You? 
first is what is called the covenant of redemption. And without trying to sound silly, every time I consider this, the covenant of redemption, <laughs> it, it blows my mind. So you see, from certain passages in the Bible, from Isaiah 53, Revelation 13, it seems clear that what has happened, here's, how about this for a phrase, that before the dawn of time, before the creation of the world, what has happened is that the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have entered into a covenant. They have entered into this mutually binding agreement to do what? To work out salvation. I, I, come on, you've got to be with me there. Like you see, it takes our breath away. Our brains begin to bleed a little bit. <laughs> it's pretty majestic. Listen, before the creation of the world, there was an intra-Trinitarian agreement to do what? To look at you and to save you, Christian friend, before the creation of the world. That's epic, right? That's your covenant of redemption. I say three covenants. Second one is this. It is called the covenant of works. And can I ask you as a congregation? You heard of this before, right? The covenant of works. Where do we have to go for the covenant of works? We have to go a long way back to the Garden of Eden. So let me speak to the boys and girls for a moment. So kids, will you listen to me? Listen to your minister for a moment. Um, I'm going to ask you the easiest question I have ever asked you. So you can't get it wrong or there's trouble. Church discipline will ensue. Who was in the Garden of Eden? Ah, oh, just split second. Beautiful. Love it. Adam and Eve. Right? Now, this was God's agreement with Adam. So you listen carefully to this. Adam could have eternal life. Adam could have everything. Adam could have a relationship with God, boys and girls. So long as he did one thing, so long as he obeyed God. Now here's my follow-up question for the children. You shout it out. Did Adam obey God? No. What did he do? Ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He disobeyed God. Do you see, friends, what that means? Like the covenant of works that he has made with humanity... What happened? It was broken. Like man broke the terms of that covenant. You see that covenant of works? Where is it? It lies dead. It lies broken in the dust of the Garden of Eden. The covenant of works, gone broken. So we've got the covenant of redemption. We've got the covenant of works. And that takes us to the third covenant. And I said there was three covenants. This is the third. It is the most beautiful thing. In all of creation. And it's called the covenant of grace. And friend, let me ask you, thus far, where are we in redemption history? Where are we? If we've had the covenant of redemption, that was before creation. And if we had the covenant works, that was the Garden of Eden. Where are we? In the Bible, where are we? We're only in Genesis chapter 3. Isn't that right? That's, that's, but what happens in Genesis? You know this, don't you? What has God done in Genesis 3? He begins another covenant with humanity. And this is essential for today. It is a covenant that begins in Genesis 3 
And it stretches all the way through Holy Scripture. A covenant, did you hear that? A covenant that begins in Genesis 3 and it stretches all the way through, winds itself all the way through the all of, of Holy Scripture and to today and into human history. It continues. What were the terms of this covenant? Well, you know this if you know Genesis 3. What does God begin to promise? Genesis 3.15, what does he begin to promise? Despite our sin, he begins to promise a saviour. Despite the fact that it was you and me, it was us who broke his covenant, the covenant works. God comes in and he promises a seed. I will give you an offspring of a woman, one who will crush the serpent's head. Do you see what's happening here? Despite our wickedness, despite our sin, there is for humanity hope. Why? Because a third great covenant has begun. In Genesis 3, the covenant of grace begins. Now let's breathe. Because maybe you're thinking, this is intense this morning. You know, the covenant theology and maybe... You know, chucking a lot of ideas and a lot of terms out this morning. Let's breathe. Maybe because of all that, you'll be surprised at what I'm going to say next. Everything I've said thus far is preparatory. Everything is leading up, setting the stage for what comes next. You see, there is a fourth question that surely we must ask just now. If it is in this third covenant, the covenant of grace that stretches from Genesis 3 onwards, the covenant of grace, if it is there that you and I learn about salvation, what's the fourth question we've got to ask? How does that covenant of grace work? It stretches from Genesis 3 onwards. How does it function? And this is... So important. This is what I want to do. I want to try and explain this covenant of grace and how it works by way of an illustration. So if you've heard nothing up to now, please hear the illustration. I, uh, uh, I love uh, house design programs on the TV. I don't know if you're in the same boat as me. I talk about these things a lot from the pulpit, so the, the, the members of the congregation are probably bored of this. I love house design uh, programs. You know the sort of thing I'm talking about? You know, uh, there's one called Building Your Dream Home. I'm, I'm on that. You know, that's on, you know, clearly that I'm watching that. The other one that I talk about all the time is that one where, you know, your man Kevin McLeod. Uh, grand designs. I love that. See, when I retire, I'm going to be building some weird lighthouse somewhere or something like that. Now, if you're with me, if you have ever seen these type of things before, you will know that there's a kind of new fashion when it comes to house design. Lots of people are building individually designed prefabricated houses. Do you know the sort of thing that I'm talking about? Some guy somewhere will have a great idea for a house, but he's not going to build it on site. What does he do? He gets the big chunks of the house built together, put together in a factory somewhere. And then he transports these bits onto the site. And what do the builders have to do? It's kind of easy for the builders, isn't it? The builders just have to take these bits of houses and put them together. and it's lots. Now, let's say you and I were watching that on the TV. We're sitting back with our cup of tea. And if we're going old school, maybe a digestive biscuit or something like that. We're watching this grand designs. What do we see? We see that house constructed 
gradually. In fact, isn't this true? We see that house put together piece by piece by piece. That would be our experience watching that. Isn't it? Piece by piece by piece, the house goes up. I need you to see this. That that is what God has done in salvation. That is what he has revealed to us in scripture. See, I need you just now to understand this covenant of grace that stretches through the Bible. I need you to think of it as a house. And do you see what God has done? God constructed this salvation house. He's done it gradually. How's he done it? He's done it piece by piece by piece. What God has done is that he has used smaller sub-covenants that appear successively through the Bible. He's taken those. And what happens? A sub-covenant goes up. And what happens? We get to see or more of this covenant house is revealed to us. He builds it piece by piece through successive covenants in Scripture. Now this is what I want us to do. I want us to imagine just now we are watching that process. Watching a divine grand designs. Will you do that with me? Watching God construct his plan of salvation. Will we do this? So what have we got just now before us? We've just seen the foundation laid. Because what do we know, Genesis 3? We know this house of salvation. It will involve something to do with a saviour. We know that. But what is the first piece that will fit in this house? What's the first sub-covenant? Well, if you know scripture... You know that God's first sub-covenant is the covenant with Noah, isn't it? So again, let me speak to the boys and girls. So kids, you ready? You on it? You all know the story of Adam and Eve, but you also know the story of Noah. Now think about the story of Noah, because your minister is going to put you on the spot any time now. In fact, you correct me if I'm wrong. Was there a flood with Noah? Yeah, there was. Flooded the earth. And then after that, who did, who did God save? He saved Noah and Noah's family. Now after that, and what the congregation know, is that God entered into a very solemn covenant at that point with Noah. And what did God put in the sky? Oh, brilliant. I thought that would take a while, but right on it again. God puts a rainbow in the sky. And friends, what I want to ask you as a congregation is, do you see... What that sub-covenant with Noah teaches us about salvation. What is that revealing to us about the overarching covenant of grace? What does it reveal? The, The story with Noah. Now we know that the covenant of grace not only will involve a judgment on sin, we also know, as with Noah, in salvation there will be a renewal of the earth. Don't we? And renew us with Noah, renewal in the earth and salvation, and it will come through one righteous man. Do you see what's happening? A piece of the building has gone up, the sub-covenant has gone up, and it's revealed more of God's plan of salvation. So let's keep building. The next sub-covenant is, of course, the covenant with Abraham. Isn't that right? Now, we studied this as a congregation uh, not all that long ago. We went through uh, Genesis. So I'm confident the congregation will know this. What is it that God promised to Abraham? What did he promise? 
on the basis of faith, he promised him land. Something, you see it, don't you, friends? Something that reveals a heavenly hope to salvation. What else did God promise Abraham? He promised him offspring. Something that reveals God's plan is to save many, many people. What else did God promise Abraham? He promised them intimacy. He said to Abraham, I will be your God. Something that reveals that God's plan in salvation is actually for relationship with his people. Do you feel what's happened? Wow. We slot that next piece of the house in, that next sub-covenant, and we stand back and we see so much more of the covenant of grace. Suddenly we know, if we have faith in a saviour, there will be immeasurable blessing for the people of God. Now you, not sure, most of you in here with me, you know that when we're watching a program like Grand Designs, there is always a moment where things go wrong, isn't there? I, I, there's a sort of sick part of me that enjoys these moments when I'm watching it on the TV. But you know it, don't you? There's a moment where there's a bit of a problem with the building project. And that bit gets transported from the factory and it doesn't quite fit. And the builders have to get their hammers out and they have to knock it to place before it goes in. You know it, don't you? That's what we come to next. Because the next sub-covenant, the next piece is God's sub-covenant with Moses. And here, I just want to pass this over to you. You tell me, what what happened at Sinai? What happened with the old covenant, God's sub-covenant with Moses? What did God give his people? He gave them the, the law. He gave his people the Deuteronomic code. Now, you answer a follow-up question. What role does the law have in this unfolding of salvation? What role does the law play? Is it just a restating of the covenant of works? Is that all it is? No, you see it, don't you? God gave the law to reveal our need. To reveal to us our sin. Isn't that the crucial role of the law? Before the law, people maybe thought, I'm good enough for God. I've got this nailed. I'm fine for salvation. But now, now the law has come. Now there's all these written regulations. Then there's no excuse. Do you see? At Sinai, at that sub-covenant, the covenant of grace has moved on apace. Now people aren't just looking for a savior. After the law, what do we need? We need a saviour from our sin and our iniquity. Would you agree with us that our house is looking awesome? (laughs) Isn't it looking good? It's all coming together, all these bits and pieces, all these sub-covenants are building up. And we're getting a really good idea of salvation, aren't we? It's looking beautiful. In fact... Builders have just added a second floor. God's sub-covenant with David. What happens there? We understand, yeah, the family line of the Savior. What else happens with David? We now know this Savior shall be an eternal king. Things are looking great, but there is a problem. Do you want to know what the problem is? We've constructed our dream home in Scotland. (laughs) So the rain is coming down. 
It's pouring in and our house is not watertight at all. So we better get a roof on this place, okay? So that takes us to the very last of the sub-covenants of the covenant of grace. We have to deal with what is called the new covenant of God. And if you know your stuff in here theologically, you know that this is where the real controversy kicks in, don't you? When I start talking about the new covenant. Because there's many Christians, many Christians, uh, who would disagree with what I've said. Many Christians are called dispensationalists. And they would say that this is all wrong. They would say that in the Bible you have an old covenant, an Old Testament, and a new covenant, a New Testament, and you see those two things. A dispensationalist would say they are separate entirely. They would say that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there was a different understanding of salvation. That's what they would say. And so you can kind of ignore the Old Testament. You can put it away as no consequence just now for us. Right? Now, unsurprisingly, as a Reformed minister, I'm going to say to you, I disagree with that. And I do want you to see why. We got Adrian to come up earlier on, and what did he read? He read, hmm, he read Jeremiah 31. And the language there is everything. You see, when Jeremiah talks about the new covenant, the word that he uses for new, more often than not, it does not mean something brand spanking new. doesn't mean something entirely distinct. The word that Jeremiah uses for new, more often than not, do you know what it means? It means a new part of something that is already in existence. A new addition of something that's already there. That's the way the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, understands it. That's the way the New Testament authors seem to understand it. Do you see what it means? Do you see what it means? What's the new covenant? Is it something brand spanking new, different from the Old Testament? Is it? No, what is it? It's our roof. The new covenant is the last sub-covenant of this overarching plan of God. It is the last, the most glorious part of the covenant of grace. And I wonder if you see what you and I can now do. See what we can do? We can now stand back and admire the home. We can stand back and admire this plan of salvation. Because what has God done? He has unfolded throughout the Bible this glorious plan to save sinners. And do you see what this means for you, Christian friend? What does he promise you? He promises you forgiveness. He promises you rest and inheritance. He says, I will write my law on your heart. I'm going to dwell with my very own spirit. He says these words. I will remember your sin no more. And how? How? All of it through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator. All of it because of the blood. All of it because of the blood of the covenant that was spilled on Calvary Hill. Isn't it glorious? You see God building up throughout Scripture this covenant of grace. 
I wish, I wish, I wish that we had more time. Because I would love to show you how all of this necessitates infant baptism. Maybe you see it, do you? If there is a covenant of grace that stretches through the Bible, and if there is a sign in the covenant of grace, then what must we do? We must administer the sign of the covenant of grace. And who does God tell us that is for? It is for us and our children. You see? It necessitates infant baptism. It does. But there's no time to go into it in any detail. So I will end with this. Just a very brief and unnecessary question. Why? Ah, Christian friend, why does God do this? Why does he do it? Why? Why? Why would God unfold salvation through formal ritual promises? Why would he do this? Well, maybe you saw it in Genesis 15, did you? Twice, Abraham cries out to God. Twice, he says, God, how can I know this is true? You see it? God makes Abraham a promise, and Abraham believes the promise, but he wants proof. He cries out to God, God, how can I know? And what does God say? He says, bring me a heifer. You see it? Abraham's crying, how do I know? And God says, you can know, because I'm going to enter into a formal promise, a formal covenant with you. Why does he unfold salvation like this? For our assurance. I'll see if I can get through this. I'll see if I can get through it. In the ancient Near East, when two men entered into a covenant, do you know what they did? They took the heifer and they cut the heifer in two and both parties walked between the parts of the animal. Do you see what was going on? They were saying, let what has been done to this animal be done to me if I break the terms of this agreement. And I end asking you this, in verse 17, who, in this overarching plan of salvation, who walked between the animals? Do you see it? Look at verse 17. Abraham does not do it. What locks between? You have a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Come on, people. A cloud and fire. Who walks between the animals? It is the presence of your God. Do you see the message? If you're in Christ today, your salvation is secure. If you're in Christ today, if his blood has been spilt for you, you can know this. You will always be saved. You have been saved. You are saved. You will be saved. It is certain. Why? Because the Lord God himself has walked between the animals of the covenant of grace. He has sworn upon himself that he will uphold the covenant of grace. Isn't that marvelous friends isn't it you can know as a christian your salvation is here 
May it be that we go from this place rejoicing that our God is creator, that he is holy, but may we go from this place rejoicing in the fact that your God is a God who makes promises, but he is a covenant-keeping God. Let's pray. Lord God, how we praise you for what you have done in salvation. We thank you that in Genesis 3, you have begun this great, this great promise of salvation. And from there in the covenant of grace, you have unfolded its glory through a succession of sub-covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the new covenant. And we thank you that it was you yourself who has promised to uphold the terms of this treaty with men. We thank you for the mediator of this covenant. We thank you that it is all dependent upon Christ. And we thank you for what we saw in Genesis 15. It is faith in him that makes us righteous. Lord God, we praise you for Jesus, for that covenant blood that's been spilt. And we pray in his name. Amen.